My name is Charles. I'm the lead pastor here. I hope everyone is well today. It just feels like Omicron has just really been uh, taking us to a different level, huh? It's just crazy. But it is passing, and we're going to get to a much better place soon. So I'm looking forward to that. But in the meanwhile, let's stay safe, uh, you know, try to keep the social distance, keep our masks on, and try to be, you know, stay as healthy as we can get. Yeah? Great. Um, we're in a sermon series called What Makes Gospel Good News? Because gospel literally means good news. Uh, but sadly, in today's culture, it's more like bad news to so many people. Primarily because I feel it's just been so wildly misunderstood. Right? It's just, people just don't think good news when someone tries to come and say, I want to share the gospel with you. How do you feel when someone does that? I mean, I'm a pastor and I feel like, oh, you know. <laughs> so, what happened? It's not so good. So with this sermon series, we are trying to show that the gospel is good news and only good news, uh, pure and simple. Make sense? And today I want to begin with a character from a book I read recently. His name is Henry, and he makes a deal with the devil. So that caught my attention because I'm a pastor, right? That's interesting to me, right? Uh, Henry is a nice young man, but he's kind of lost. He's adrift. He doesn't know what he wants out of life, so he tries various things, and nothing really works out. He's a, uh, what you call these days, a failure to launch, right? You know that phrase? He's almost 30 now, and it's just nothing has worked out. And now he works at a bookstore, manning the cash register. And uh, he's just like a kind of a lost soul a little bit, right? And when his girlfriend breaks up with him, he hits rock bottom. And that's when he makes a deal with the devil. Like Faust. Have you heard of Faust? The Faustian bargain? So he sells his soul. Um, and drumroll, in exchange for what, right? Not for power or fame or wealth, but to become beloved. He wants to be enough. He's tired of being a disappointment. He just wants to be enough for just being him. So he's willing to sell his soul for that. And the result is, well, let me read you an excerpt from the book about him going home to his family for uh, a Jewish holiday. His family is Jewish. And his father is a doctor. His brother is a doctor. His sister, younger sister, is a celebrated art critic. And the family dinners and holidays are difficult for him. 
And so this is the excerpt from that time. For Hanukkah, Henry always arrives late to the family dinner. Always felt like some carelessness on his part until he realized there was some strange attempt at self-preservation. <laughs> it always felt like a guest in someone else's house. He dreads the moment questions turn towards him. His mother worries aloud about everything. His father finds an excuse to use the word unmoored. His brother reminds him he's almost 30. His sister Muriel advises him to commit, really commit. Boxed in by his siblings, positioned across from his parents like a criminal before a firing squad. I really love that sentence. <laughs> ah, I can relate. He arrives at the door. He braces for the mention of timing, chastising frown. Cutting remark, his brother and sister always arrives five minutes early. Instead, his father says, there you are. His brother says, long time no see. His sister throws her arms around his neck. She kisses his cheek. Nowhere are comments on the length of his hair, which is always somehow too long, or the state of his sweater, which is frayed, but also the most comfortable thing he owns. Not once does anyone tell him that he's too thin or that he needs more sun or he looks tired, even though all of those usually precede pointed remarks. It can't be that hard to run a bookstore in Brooklyn. His mother cups his face and tells him she's so happy he's there. His father toasts to the family together again. He feels like he stepped into another version of his life. Twilight Zone, right? Not ahead or behind, but sideways. One where his sister looks up to him, and his brother doesn't look down, where his parents are proud, and all the judgments are sucked out of the room like smoke vented from a fire. He didn't realize how much connective tissue was made up of guilt. Without the weight of it, he feels dizzy and light, euphoric. David, his older brother, is warm and curious. Muriel is attentive and kind. His father listens to everything he says and seems genuinely interested. His mother tells him she's proud. He asks, of what? She laughs and says, of you. He doesn't have to be anyone but himself because he is enough. He knows it's not real, but he sure feels nice. Isn't that such an interesting passage? Does anyone relate to like awkward family dinners? Anyone have that, that, that experience where, you know, your family makes these remarks like about your weight? Like, you know, you're too thin, too fat, this or that. Uh, you have to work harder uh, if you want to succeed. We are worried about you. We are, anybody ring a bell? My family. Asian family, but I think this is, this is a Jewish family. But I think this is uh, universal, right? My family, they, they make all these remarks because they love me. You know what I'm saying? Like they think, they think if they can point out all my flaws 
and mistakes I have made, I won't get hurt again, right? My mom brings up mistakes I made like 30 years ago, 40 years ago, still, right? I, I, I'm 50, well, I, I'm in my 50s. I want to say the last digit. I'm in my 50s. My mom's in her 80s. And she still is like worried like I am a 12-year-old, 15-year-old teenager. And so she points out all these things, you know, I used to do. You know, like my older sister points out all the ways that I make mistakes out of love. Any, anyone relate to that? Right? It's Henry's family. It's a, it's a very well-known thing. We all know what they're trying to do, but we as human beings, we have this deep desire to be loved and delighted in as we are, especially from our family. And so Henry is desperate enough to make a deal with the devil sell his soul to get that because it's such a desired thing. I was so surprised when I read that part. I thought, how ironic is that? Because that's the deal God offers. <laughs> but in today's culture, people think you have to go to the devil to get that. The deal God offers, you know, it's full of judgments. It's full of, you know, you have to measure up to God's standards, let alone your family's standards. It's full of guilt and shaming and all the things you have to do. You, you wear your Sunday best. Have you heard that phrase? You have to be your best version of yourself to present yourself before God in church, in your church family. It, it is Henry's old family dynamic. That's what people think God offers. And to get the opposite, you have to go to the devil. That's why you read an excerpt like that in a book, right? And that just made my blood boil, right? I mean, because it's the exact opposite. <laughs> you know, your church family should be the one that's like the new dynamic, you know, just warm and encouraging. Ah, oh, it's so misunderstood. So, we've been in this sermon series about how misunderstood God is, how misunderstood the gospel is, and, and we've been, I've been using different teachings from Jesus. And today, I want to talk about this, this new dynamic with Henry. This, this, when the deal with the devil gets made. Because it's as if like everyone in the family has new personality, right? They're like new characters. Like Henry, the, the book says, you know, it's like he's in another version of reality, right? It's a new reality. It's as if Henry has been born again into a new family. Have you heard this phrase, born again? You have to be a born-again Christian to be saved. You heard that phrase, right? Born-again Christian, what do you think of when you think of that? You think of someone whose life is falling apart, right? Like uh, you're addicted to drug or you become a criminal or your life is just falling apart. 
But then you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you start cleaning up your life, and you become sober. You're not addicted anymore, and you become like an upstanding church leader, right? That's a born-again Christian. That's what people think of when you hear that phrase. Now, I'm only happy to hear of such a, a good life change, but this is not what Jesus meant by born again. You see, the phrase born again comes from this, this passage, book of John, chapter 3. It's the only time Jesus talks about born again. This is the passage where that phrase comes from. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, major leader, uh, religious leader. He's like a cardinal. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? This passage is why many Christians say you have to be born again to be saved, because Jesus says very clearly no one can even see the kingdom of God unless you are born again, right? So it is a requirement for salvation. So that's why people, Christians say this. And born-again Christian has come to mean like you are serious, you know, real Christian, not those willy-nilly liberal Christians. Just you, you're, you're serious about faith. You study the Bible. You pray every day. You come to church, you know, five times a week. You, know, you walk the narrow path. You know, upstanding, righteous, church, believer, elder, whatever, right? But here's my question. Isn't Nicodemus just such a person already, right? He is a leader among the Pharisees. Let me tell you a little bit about the Pharisees. These people were serious believers, you could not get any more serious. I mean, you could have, you could, but they, be, they are like really like ascetic monks. I mean, for like a regular person, this is about as conservative and, and real believer as you can get. They memorize the Bible. You know, one of the things that Pharisees did was they take the Bible, you put a needle through the Bible, and seeing where the first word hits, you'll know what the word that, the needle hits throughout the Bible. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, that's one of the things they did. They memorized the Bible, not even memorized it. They know exactly where it went in the manuscript. They fasted all the time. They went to church all the time. They prayed all the time. They are, they are far more serious Christian than almost any Christian alive today in terms of, not a, not a Christian, but in terms of following God, believing in God, being a devout you know, person. And Nicodemus is a leader among them. So can you imagine what kind of an upstanding person he is? So why does Jesus tell Nicodemus, you must be born again? 
to be saved. If born-again Christian means serious, devout church leader, Nicodemus is already such a person. And if such a devout person has to change who he is so much, that he's like a brand new person, like he's born again. You are are like nothing like who you are now. You, You are a completely different person. What could that be? It can't be read the Bible more. It can't be be a more upstanding person. He is about as humanly possible doing that already. Right? So what exactly is born again? And how does it save? And I believe born again means exactly that. It's exactly like Henry's new family dynamic. You see, all of us, We build our identity, our worth, our concept of self in what we do and how well we do them, right? We have these values and belief systems in our heads, and we we build our concept of self on how well we measure up to these things. For example, we say things like, I'm a doctor, I'm an engineer, I'm a teacher, not... I practice medicine. I, engi- I, I make things. It's I am. You know, we, we place ourselves in society, in our family, in our family dinners, in our relationships to one another, according to how well we think we are doing in terms of the values and belief systems that we have from our culture, from our friends, from our family, from the past. We all have all these voices in our heads, don't we? You know? And our parents' voices about how we have to work harder or we have to be more righteous or more successful or whatever it is. And we have our sense of self from that. And these voices tend to be critical like Henry's old family, about our weight, about our success, about our places. It's all there. And these kinds of voices, that's what causes compulsions and addictions and anxieties and envy and pride and greed because these voices tell you, you're not good enough. You're not enough. You don't have enough. You're not good enough. You have to work harder. You have to do this or that. And it it makes you like go around trying to cover all these voices up, silence these voices by doing all these things that we do, or give up and judge those people who try. (laughs) Whatever makes us feel a little bit better, or at least not feel as bad. And that's what drives all these sinful behaviors, all these insecurities. It's a bottomless pit. So Nicodemus, let's consider how he has constructed his sense of self. His identity, I presume, or I assume, is wrapped up in being righteous, being devoted, you know, or someone like that, a religious person. His sense of self is all about, I am a man of God. 
I am a devoted believer. I am a righteous, upstanding person who is an example, a light to all these other people. I lead by example. That's his identity, wouldn't you think? And Jesus tells him, you have to die to all that. You have to be born again. Because good things they are, they are good things. But if you have constructed your identity on those things, they will get in your way of knowing God, having a relationship with God, and really being part of heaven, being part of kingdom of God. Because as Christians, as followers of Christ, our identity can only be built on the love of God for us, on the unconditional love of God for us. No matter what we do, who we are, through the cross, God has declared, I love you. God has declared you worthy of life of God incarnate. You are worthy for who you are. And that has to be the sole basis of our relationship with God. This is what is meant by salvation, by faith alone. It's not by works. Nothing we do or can give to God. There's nothing we can give to God or do for God anyway, right? We are the beloved. And that's from God, not from us. And that's the faith that we have to build our identity on. And that's how you get saved. The passage goes on to say, For God so loved the world unconditionally that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. This is the bedrock foundation of Christian faith. I mean, you heard this, of this verse. John 3.16, you see that on football stadiums, right? People put that up, right? Believing in this and constructing your whole sense of self on this and this alone is what makes you a Christian. That's it. Believing in anything else, you're straying from Christian faith. Anything else, even if it is like, well, you got to read the Bible more, and that's how you get saved. Well, that's, that's, not, that's the opposite of what Jesus came to preach. That makes you a religious person, not a Christian. That makes you a Nicodemus, not a Christian. That's why Jesus is saying to be saved and have eternal life, you just have to believe. God loves you unconditionally. Jesus is representative of that. He is agape, unconditional love made flesh. So it's not the devil, but it's God who offers this deal to be born again into this kind of new dynamic where it doesn't matter if you are lost and adrift and failure to launch or whatever else may be, you're going to be warmly welcomed. God and church and his people, we, we're just so happy to see anyone. <laughs> we're happy to see you. 
We're delighting in you. And our church needs to be like Henry's new family dynamic, where you just, it's like Cheers bar, you know, that, where everybody knows your name. And, you know, you go there and you want to go to this bar because you, you feel welcome, that nobody's going to judge you, nobody, like, tells you. You just feel good there. That's why people go to the bars, right? Church needs to become like bars like that, you know? That's what born again means. Deal with the devil will always be conditional. Or the world, quid pro quo, give and take. Be successful and then you can feel good about yourself. Be pretty or famous or thin enough or whatever. And then you can feel like you're somebody. Deal with God as no quid, quid pro quo. The only requirement is take the deal. <laughs> I mean, if you don't take the deal, you don't get the deal, right? I mean, that's the only requirement. You have to take the deal. Believe in God's unconditional love. Doesn't mean you don't have to do anything from here on out. Once you take the deal, you do have to live out of that belief and that system of life. We have to be more like Henry's new family everyone around. We have to construct our identity solely upon being the beloved of God. So, here's a spiritual exercise that we need to engage in all the time. What makes, we, what makes you feel good about yourself and what makes you beat up on yourself? Just take a moment to think about what, what, what is it? When do you feel like you are a, a good person that should be praised or should be accepted and welcomed? You know, like Henry's older brother, he's like, I'm a doctor, I'm a successful doctor, so, you know, I can look down on you. So I can make these remarks about how you need to work a little harder, how you are unmoored. You know what I'm saying, right? Or when do you like feel like you need to beat up on yourself? You know, I'm, I'm lazy. I need to work harder. I, I'm not righteous enough. You know? I have these addictions. I do this. I do that. Whatever it may be. When, when do you beat up on yourself? These are the moments you have to be very, very careful. These are the moments where you have to think about what does it mean to be a born-again person. I have, we all have, constructed our identities on something. So we need to be careful that we are not judging ourselves and others around these identities that we have used. Yes? Does that make sense? You can't regret your mistakes. You can't condemn bad behavior. Because that hurts people. But we are always the beloved of God. We need, to be, we need to take care to be encouraging to everyone around us. Delight in people around us, including ourselves. When is the last time you delighted in yourself? Can you remember? I feel like I have to go back to like when I was like five years old. 
You know, when you were five years old, it was much easier to, like, be happy with who you are. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, you didn't have a care in the world, and you were just happy to be you. You know, you're kind of full of yourself in that way, in some sense. But not full of yourself because of some fact, but just being you. I mean, what does a five-year-old, what has a five-year-old accomplished, right? But they just cry and eat and, you know, have full of needs. And they wouldn't survive a, a day on their, on their own. But you are happy. The church, you have to be more like children in that sense. So let's understand properly what it means to be born again. I think I preached enough about that. I think we get it, right? If you are full of yourself or narcissistic, that's because of some trait of yours. You, you let it get to your head because you are successful or you've done something good. And you can look down on others along those axes of judgment. That's bad, right? Good or bad, I think you get that, right? That's bad because it's on a trait. Because it's, it's about something that you've done or something that you have or who you are. Does that make sense? To be born again, you have to let go of all those things. And you are happy with yourself just because. Because God died for you. So you can't become proud because it has nothing to do with you. It's about God and God's love for you. Does that make sense? It doesn't need to pry. It leads to security. It leads to resilience. Do you see the difference? That's what it means to be born again. Your identity is done. You are dead to who you are, and you are born again into the love of God and nothing else. And that brings salvation. Just slice of heaven on earth, right? To be part of a family like that, to have that kind of dynamic around you all the time where your inner voice, that critic in your head that's gone, doesn't that feel nice? Salvation. That's heaven on earth. It's a preview what is coming. That's good news. Hallelujah. Let's worship God.